Time for swordplay. Alex, actor and retired professional wrestler Mr. T, has been using his platform in order to tell people that the antidote to hatred is God's love. Nick Perez! I pity the fool who doesn't love his neighbor! They're dead meat! Drink your milk! Stay in school! Don't do drugs! There it is. That's Listen that's to Swordplay Podcast! That's what was needed. <laughs> How could you not? That's the that's the best I can do for Mr. T. <laughs> <laughs> this is Swordplay offering a double-edged perspective on Scripture. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're making our way through the book. We've gone through most of the book. Just one more chapter left. Hang in there with us next week. And uh, we have, as always, plenty of information to get through, so let's get started, Nick. Uh, Verse 1, Peter says that, uh, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So can a Christian really stop sinning? Yeah, that phrase there, ceased from sin, uh, in the original language, uh, is what's called a perfect passive verb, uh, and it denotes that Christians, they make a clean break from sin and then are devoted to obeying God as the supreme motivation for all of their actions. Sin, of course, would be anything opposed to the will of God. And here, uh, the the phrase ceased from sin is uh, further detailed in verse 2, when Peter explains how now Christians are to uh, live for the will of God, as opposed to uh, living for human passions. And so in view here is uh, the, the process of sanctification. The perfect tense indicates a clean break from sin, whereby obedience to God becomes our chief aim in all that we do, uh, as opposed to, you know, some would say, well, you no longer sin, you never sin again. That is a notion which fails to account for a number of other verses which teach the complete opposite, kind of a perfectionism uh, doctrine. Uh, but uh, Peter, I believe, is clear here in uh, contrasting the life that was lived in opposition to the will of God, and now Christians, they live for the will of God, and in that way they have uh, made that clean break with sin. So that's what I see here. Alex, what, what do you think? Can a Christian really stop sinning? You know, the Apostle John uh, says something similar in his epistle, First John. On the one hand, the person born of God does not sin, chapter 5, verse 18. But on the other hand, if you say you have no sin, you are a liar, chapter 1, verse 8. So what's the solution to this dichotomy? Well, he tells you in the letter, if one abides in sin, that is as a lifestyle, as a worldview, then that person cannot claim allegiance to God, allegiance to Christ, because they live for the flesh, right? They eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The modern update is YOLO, you only live once, right? Hmm. You know, Peter describes this lifestyle here in chapter 4, verse 3 of 1 Peter. But if one commits to being like Christ, then moral failures, which will happen, they are forgiven, in that process of sanctification. And we're going to talk a lot about sanctification because uh, that's what Peter has in mind through much of this letter, including this chapter. But we are forgiven of our moral failures as we continue the process of sanctification, assuming, of course, that there is confession of sin and repentance uh, for sin that takes place. Uh, Again, that's in 1 John chapter 1. So... Talk for a moment about uh, one of the things Peter says here is the the one having suffered in flesh has stopped sin, right? That's literally uh, what it says here. Uh, So talk about suffering in the flesh. How how does suffering in the flesh help one not to sin? Yeah, you know, generally speaking, no one prefers to suffer. No one prefers physical pain or discomfort. Uh, And that is what Peter is talking about, suffering in the flesh. So when the Christian is faced with 
serious repercussions for practicing Christianity, like these Christians here in exile or imprisonment or beatings or loss of job, loss of family, even death, then that's when one's faith is truly put to the test. Will one's commitment to Christ be stronger than one's natural desire to avoid pain? And that's the part of reasoning, I think, that's behind uh, certain spiritual disciplines like fasting. You know, generally speaking, no one prefers to feel hungry, but uh, when we fast, it's for the sake of a higher purpose. And so suffering in the flesh, it makes us less susceptible to the temptations of the flesh, like the ones listed here in verse 3. So speaking of verse 3, we have these vices and... uh, what what do they what do they hear? Verse three it says, pursuing the desire of the Gentiles, pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. Nick, why do you think the Gentiles go after all of those vices? I think it's the same reason all unregenerate humans pursue their fallen passions. It's what Paul writes in Romans eight and verse nine. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And their flesh, that would be the the fallen nature, it does not present their will with the desire to do what is right before God. Their will operates on the desires presented by the flesh. Uh, And so uh, that's, I think, what's uh, going on here with the, the Gentiles as well. Uh, What about you, Alex? Why did the Gentiles go after these vices? Well, I'll start out by saying that God's people have always needed to look to God for the path of righteousness. As Peter quotes in chapter 1, verse 16, he quotes that passage from Leviticus, which says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. You know, that's Old Testament uh, teaching that still counts here in the New Testament. And now Christ has come. We see that he is the exact image of God in human flesh. He is the perfect revealing of the Father. You get that in Hebrews 1.3 and John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 18. So now we strive as Christians to be like Jesus. That's the process of sanctification. And the principle behind that is true for everyone. People will be shaped, spiritually speaking, in their soul, in their spirit. People will be shaped to look like that which they worship. And of course, that will manifest in physical actions, the way they behave, the way they act, the things they go after. So if you worship the, oh, I don't know, the Greek and Roman gods, then you'll eventually act like they do, which includes the list of vices listed here in verse 3, and even worse, much worse, actually. It goes along, I think, this idea with the resurrection as well. If there is no resurrection, then we Christians are to be pitied most of all, and we should eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, right? YOLO, you only live once. It's not just the nature of the flesh, I think, that draws one into earthly vices, but also one's object or objects of worship. Yeah, uh, G.K. Beale, he wrote the book, uh, We Become What We Worship. So I think that's kind of, it sounds like what I'm hearing you say, right? It sounds right to me. All right. <laughs> what I say sounds right to me, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> well, verse five, um, these Gentiles, they will have to give account for their actions. There is a day of judgment. So when do you think, Nick, will the Gentiles have to give an account for their actions? Verse five. Yeah, Peter is assuring his readers that the reviling of the unbelievers is not the last word. What the unbelievers say about these Christians, not the last word. They will give a word back to God, uh, which is literally what it says there, uh, who will give back a word uh, to the one who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Uh, So, in other words, they will answer to God for maligning Christians, and in this way, the suffering of the Christians will be vindicated. And so I, it seems final judgment is in view here. Uh, what do you think, Alex? When, when will this happen? Well, I will say I don't think it's just the vindication of Christians in view, but also the salvation of those who live for the lust of the flesh. You know, these people, these Gentiles, the nations, they need to be preached to. And Peter has mentioned this. He mentioned it in chapter 2, verse 9. 
we are called out of darkness to proclaim the excellencies of of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We, chapter 3, verse 15, we give an answer for the hope that is within us uh, with gentleness and respect. Uh, chapter 4, verse 6, which we'll talk about in just a moment, about the preaching of the gospel to the living and the dead. You know, people need to be preached to, otherwise they will perish in the final judgment. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31 says, this is Paul in his sermon on Mars, Mars Hill, the Areopagus. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So all that to say, yeah, I think the timing of, of the Gentiles is the final judgment. Um, that judgment will occur for people to give an account for all they have said and done, including the maligning of Christians. But before that happens, there is a chance to repent. There is a chance to receive the gospel. And that's, I think, in the back of Peter's mind as well. He wants these people to be saved. So Nick, verse 5, says he... God is ready to judge the living and the dead. Who are the living and the dead in verse 5? Yeah, this is stock language that we find elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul uses it in Romans 14, verse 9, also in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Peter also uses it when he's talking to Cornelius in Acts 10 and verse 42, the living and the dead. This indicates the universality of the jurisdiction of God as judge. All people for all time. Uh, and uh, it's similar to the phrase that you read over in Hebrews 12 and verse 23, the judge of all. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a similar parallel statement uh, for uh, living and the dead, the one who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Uh, so that's what I see here. Alex, who are the living and the dead to you? So I see the living as those people who are alive at any given moment. You know, today that would include people like you and me and our families. Uh, the dead are those whose bodies have been permanently separated from their souls. They now reside in the realm of disembodied spirits, otherwise known as the underworld or Hades in the Greek. Uh, only in a biblical debate would we have to spell this out. <laughs> but if, you, if you're interested in that debate, go back and listen to our Harrowing of Hades podcast if you hadn't checked out that episode yet. That's what we're referring to, and you'll just get a brief review here in this next verse. So, Nick, review time, mm -hmm. verse 6. Uh, the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Who are the dead to whom the gospel is preached? Yeah, and, and again, uh, diligent listener, you are invited to go back and listen to that episode on Christ's descent to the dead. And uh, as discussed there, this verse is not a further comment on 3 verse 19, uh, which is sometimes interpreted as Christ's descent, where he goes and preaches the gospel to the dead, either as a post-mortem opportunity of salvation for all the dead or as a proclamation to the righteous dead. Instead, this verse reads as an elaboration on verse 5. In fact, J. Ramsey Michaels in his commentary calls it an explanatory postscript. And it points to the vindication of this oppressed minority. Uh, those who are dead, uh, who have had the gospel preached to them, are those Christians who heard and believed the gospel while they were alive, but have since died in the meantime. It's akin to what Paul writes over in 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about there were Christ appeared to over 500 people at one time, some of whom are now asleep. Uh, that's, I think, akin to what uh, Peter is doing here uh, in addressing his audience's some heard the gospel, believed, but have since died uh, in the time between when they obeyed the gospel and when Peter writes this. The structure of this verse, I think, indicates this heavily. It's a men-day argument on, uh, and there's also a, a Hena clause here, uh, that uh, all this points to something along the lines of, on the one hand, those faithful departed, the dead who had the gospel preached to them, the faithful departed were judged or condemned by people in the flesh, no doubt content, condemned and judged for their faith in Christ and their loyalty to Christ. On the other hand, those dead in Christ live before God by the Spirit, or live perhaps in spirit, a uh, little less. That's another alternate uh, translation possibility. 
Uh, so that's my read of verse 6. Alex, what do you say? Yeah, Nick and I, if you've listened to that episode, have drastically different interpretations of these passages in this verse right here. So um, my view was that the gospel was preached to people who had died long ago, like the people who perished in the flood. And so there is a connection in my reading to chapter 3 here in chapter 4, verse 6. So they were judged in the flesh. They died. But they still had opportunity to hear the gospel in the underworld. This preaching was done by Christ when he died, which is the position I proposed in the previous episode. I personally believe that preaching still continues in the realm of the dead, but Christ started it first. He initiated that uh, mission. So in the final judgment, there will be no part of creation where the gospel was not preached in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. So go back, O diligent listener. Be sure to listen to the harrowing of Hades. So Nick, verse 7, we have, The end of all things is near. How ominous is that? Well, tell me what that means. Well, several possibilities for understanding this verse have been offered. Uh, I have four major view here's, uh, views here that we're going to walk through. Uh, first is the destruction of Jerusalem. It's just a few years away, and these Christians were living before God brought judgment upon the Jewish nation through the Romans. Uh, but uh, for me, you know, I wonder why a predominantly Gentile church in Asia Minor would need that information. Uh, but uh, that's one major view out there. Uh, a second is uh, the end time. That's the end of all things, the last day, uh, the final judgment, when rewards and punishments are meted out. Uh, the problem with this view is at hand means soon to take place. And we are nearly 2,000 years since Peter wrote this, so uh, that is kind of militating against that view. Uh, a third view, the end of suffering or the end of uh, the wicked. Christ will bring deliverance from their suffering and the evil that is surrounding them. Um, uh, that's a third view. Fourth view is the end of their lives. Barnes and Barclay, in their commentaries respectively, make uh, similar points that this could be Peter's meaning. The end of all things means the end of their lives. That's what's at hand. For me, given the... Uh, the Noah reference earlier, uh, it seems, and, and the overarching context as he's begun to exhort them, beginning in verse 1 here in chapter 4, it seems best to understand this as when God makes an end of the wicked who are causing the suffering of these Christians. As in Noah's day, when God brought about the end of all flesh, so for the Christians in Asia Minor, God will bring an end to all the things they suffer from wicked people. Uh, so that's my take on the end of all things. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I think I would take probably uh, view number one. I think it's referring to the end of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. This would be highly relevant, I think, to the Gentile Christians because the unbelieving Jews are persecuting churches everywhere in the book of Acts. When you go through and you see how they're chasing Paul from town to town as he plants congregations. Um, this would be relevant to even the mixed audience that Peter is writing here, believing Jews and Gentiles. A destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, that would be the ultimate vindication in their particular lifetime that would affirm to the believing Jews that, hey, they chose correctly, and it would affirm, to follow Christ, that is, and it would affirm to the believing Gentiles that their endurance of persecution because uh, the Jews, it wasn't just the Jewish, like Jews going out specifically, like themselves persecuting, they did that too, but they also were manipulating the Roman authorities, saying like, these guys are stirring up trouble and causing rights, and so they're, they're turning the government against the Christians as well. And so, yeah, uh, the Gentiles enduring that Jewish persecution, well, that would drastically change after AD 70, because uh, the the Jewish uh, uh, faith would have to uh, begin to rebuild itself from the ashes of a uh, destroyed temple. So, verse 7, be sober-minded. We've heard that before. What does it mean, Nick, to be sober in verse 7? 
Yeah, uh, same word, by the way, that is used earlier in chapter 1 and verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sober, sober-minded is, again, what my English standard says here. Uh, it means uh, cool, calm, collected, right? That's I, probably a good modern vernacular understanding of it. Uh, so that's what I think uh, sober, sober-minded means here. Alex, what do you think? This is the second out of three times that Peter will command them to be sober. We saw the first one in chapter 1, verse 13, here now in chapter 4, verse 7, and one more time in chapter 5, verse 8, as we'll see next time. As we saw in one thirteen, the emphasis in that verse is on spiritual warfare and girding up the loins of your mind, which is the spiritual battlefield. Here, the emphasis is on prayer. Notice how the Gentile used to go after drunkenness and drinking parties in verse 3, but now they keep their mind clear for the purpose of prayer and spiritual warfare. I think that's significant. So, Nick, verse 8, how does love cover a multitude of sins? Well, this sure does not mean that we sweep sin under the rug, right? God forbid. And unfortunately, Many churches and ministries in our day and time, they have engaged in such kind of cover-up of mm. sins, mm. especially the sexual sins of leaders. But that is not a genuine expression of love. It is merely hiding depravity. Uh, and in fact, the, the call here to love one another earnestly in verse 8 precedes the love covers a multitude of sins. So again, that genuine love which recalls one verse two, uh, one verse twenty-two. Excuse me, uh, is is in view. Also, Peter may have in mind from Proverbs ten and verse twelve: uh, "Love covers a multitude of sins." Could be an echo here. Genuine, earnest love for one another will keep no record of wrongdoing. Uh, as Paul writes in First Corinthians thirteen verse five, my English standard translates it not resentful. Uh, and the Peter, uh, the, the term that Peter uses here, is also used in the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and it is in parallel with God's forgiveness that God covers sin uh, when He forgives. You can see Psalm eighty-five and verse two for just one example of several uh, where this term is used in parallel with forgiveness. So, since God has forgiven, the Christian forgives, and since God has covered the sin by the blood of Christ, we cover the sinner with love. Uh, so my take on it, Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I certainly agree that uh, this would not support the idea of covering up sins, and that's, that's certainly a practice that needs to end in our churches today. I was uh, looking at this verse, and I was thinking, you know, you have here the, the word love, and the Greek is agape, which is the sacrificial and seeking of the best in the other. So sacrificial love, and especially seeking that other person's sanctification. Uh, when we strive to help one another out to be more holy, then that desire should compel one to action. What kind of action? Well, Peter is going to give all kinds of actions here in the next few verses. So the loving action, I think, covers a multitude of sins in the sense that one begins to sin less as their sanctification progresses. It doesn't mean uh, they're never without sin, as we already discussed earlier, but there is a progression. As sanctification takes place, you do become more like Christ. Um, that process needs an environment, needs a, uh, to, to, to grow, to be cultivated in, and I think the environment of Christians loving each other is what cultivates sanctification, and that's how it covers a multitude of sins. This loving action can even bring one back who is in error, which also covers a multitude of sins, as James says in chapter 5, verse 20. Go back and listen to our James podcast uh, for a commentary there in the archives. So Nick, verse 9, Peter says, Don't complain when being hospitable. Why would these Christians complain about practicing hospitality? Perhaps Peter's readers were growing weary of hospitality. It happens. Paul, I think, addresses a similar thing in Galatians 6 and verse 9. And so 
Peter says that one way Christians express earnest love to one another is through the ministry of hospitality, opening their homes, sharing their resources, putting roofs over one another's heads. So why would they grumble? What would they be complaining? They might complain about how hard it is. They might complain about how much time it's taking. They might complain about how much is this going to cost me, right? And so the Christian is to show hospitality to their fellow siblings in the family of God with a cheerful disposition. That would be the antithesis of without grumbling. Uh, there's, uh, and, and it's more than just externalization. I believe it begins in the heart. There's no secret murmuring in the heart about how difficult it is, how long is this going to take. Man, I wish they would just go. <laughs> Look at how much they're eating. Uh, I mean, I regret opening the door in the first place, right? Answering the call, whatever it is. This is very inconvenient, this whole ordeal is. That kind of murmuring robs hospitality of its beauty. And at a deeper level, when God shows us hospitality in creation first and then through the gospel, he does, he does that without grumbling or complaining. He gladly prepares a world and then a table for our enjoyment and for his good pleasure. And so, yeah, hospitality definitely has some theological roots here that uh, are expansive, but uh, that's what I see here about uh, grumbling concerning showing hospitality. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I certainly think the temptation to complain uh, while practicing hospitality can can sort of exist uh, today and, and during any time, but I think it seems that uh, especially to Peter's audience, that they may have had a higher than normal number of fellow believers needing hospitality. I proposed early on in our introduction to First Peter that among these Christian exiles scattered throughout Asia Minor were a large group of refugees who had recently lost everything in the great fire of Rome. And if that's the case, then Christian hospitality wouldn't just be a matter of good manners, but a matter of survival for many Christian families who now have nowhere else to go. Even under the best of circumstances today, yeah, we still get tired of hosting guests from time to time. Uh, we even have the modern proverb of, of one who has overstayed their welcome. Now imagine having to host families indefinitely under persecution with limited resources and no other options. Yeah, I, I think it might have been tempting to complain. <laughs> so, Well, verse 11, uh, Peter talks about the glory of God. What is the glory of God, Nick? You know, sometimes God's glory is manifested in a, in a physical sense. So when the tabernacle is completed, a visible manifestation of God's glory appeared. It filled the tabernacle. This is Exodus 40, verses 34 through 35. Uh, however, there is a, a more profound aspect to God's glory, which humans are unable to see. For example, Moses is permitted to catch a glimpse of God's glory when he beheld the back of Yahweh, but Yahweh's face no human can see and live. Uh, and this is in Exodus 33, verses 18 and following. It is this glory, the unseeable, majestic beauty and splendor, which belongs to God, forever and ever. Prior to any manifestation of God's glory in time, it existed, it exists, and will ever exist. In fact, some would argue that to him here uh, in verse 11, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, that to him here should be understood as referring to Jesus, since uh, he is the immediate antecedent uh, in order that God, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory forever and ever. Uh, and so, some see here that connection, and and I think that interpretation is theologically and christologically consistent, since prior to His crucifixion, Jesus prayed that the Father would glorify Him with the glory He had with the Father before the world existed. Uh, that's John seventeen and verse five. And so, again. The Godhead possesses glory prior to creation and apart from any manifestation of that glory in time and space. So uh, that's what I see here about this business of to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, Alex, what say you? Yeah, so the crazy thing is 
This passage alludes to the idea that we, as Christians, are the glory of God, right? The context refers to Christians using their gifts in service to one another so that God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. Essentially, Peter is saying that Christ is the glory of God, and we in turn then are the glory of Christ, which goes back to the glory of God. The glory of God is now seen on earth through us in the way we treat each other. And so that was just sort of a awe-inspiring thought there. Like, wow, like God's glory is physically manifested on earth, and it's through us while we treat people in a Christ-like way. That's part of our sanctification as well. Well, Nick, verse 12, Peter mentions a fiery ordeal. Why would Peter describe their suffering as a fiery ordeal? Yeah, Peter seems to use metaphorical language to recall what he wrote about the various trials uh, back in 1 verses 6 and 7. Uh, those various trials, they test the genuineness of faith, like fire proves gold more precious via refinement. And so uh, this is, uh, by the way, not unusual for the church. It is uh, normative. It is universal, uh, as Peter will write in uh, verse 17. 4 verse 17, and then also in 5 and verse 9 about how the whole brotherhood is experiencing this. So uh, that's what I see here. What say you? You know, I think that Peter may be alluding to the Great Fire of Rome, which happened in AD 64. It destroyed two-thirds of the city. It left a third of the population homeless. Now imagine someone writing a letter in the United States at the end of, oh, let's say 2001, Perhaps it would refer to their towering troubles, which of course would be understood in its historical context of the Twin Towers falling. So in the same way, I think here the fiery terminology of Peter would be hard to read in isolation after AD 64 when the fire took place and then extreme persecution in Rome against Christians under Nero's reign. Even if your home didn't burn down, say you were one of the lucky ones in Rome, it may have been best still to leave Rome after persecution got cranked to 11, right? So very bad things happened during that time period to Christians. So Nick, verses 13, 14, even in verse 16, it refers to their suffering. And one of the ways it refers to their suffering is a sharing of suffering. So why is their suffering called a sharing with Christ? Yeah, share Christ's suffering, insulted for the name of Christ, uh, suffering as a Christian, glorifying God in that name. These are sufferings which are the result of pledging allegiance to Christ. It reminds me of uh, Acts 5 and verse 41 when the uh, apostles uh, went home after being persecuted. They went home rejoicing because they had been deemed worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Uh, they were suffering for the name of Christ. And these Christians were suffering insults for the name of Christ. Uh, that is because they bore the name Christian. Uh, this is one of just the three places in the scriptures that use the word, the specific word Christian. Uh, but uh, these Christians, they, they suffered for following Christ. The present tense indicates it's a ongoing, habitual practice of both the suffering but also the rejoicing. Uh, and um, insofar as you keep on suffering with Christ, you can keep on rejoicing. Uh, count it all joy, right? This is uh, James also, right? James 1 and verse 2. So uh, that's a bit of what I see here. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, sharing in the suffering of Christ, that's a common theme throughout the New Testament. Uh, think about even the song we sing, I want to know Christ and the power of his rising, share in his suffering, conform to his death. Well, that's Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. That's in the archives if you want to listen to that, diligent listener. So sharing in the sufferings of Christ, Paul says it uh, in another way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, also in the archives if you want to listen to it. When Paul says in that verse, he does his best to fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now, we noted in that podcast that Paul was not referring to the inadequacy of Christ's atonement on the cross, but rather to the mission of bringing the message of that atonement and salvation to the rest of the world. 
Now Christ suffered to accomplish our atonement, and now we suffer with Christ as his body on earth to accomplish the worldwide proclamation of that atonement. So being a Christian then brought serious consequences for Peter's audience, but such suffering is considered a sacred suffering. It's acceptable to God as a holy sacrifice by his holy people. Be holy as I am holy. This is part of that grand picture. It's part of our sanctification. So yes, our suffering is a sharing with Christ because Christ suffered to bring atonement and we suffer for him to spread the message, the good news of that atonement. So Nick, we have Peter telling his audience in verse 15, yeah, if you suffer, uh, don't don't suffer as an evildoer. He even mentions as a troublesome meddler. What do you think is a troublesome meddler? Is yeah, that the, a, a is meddler. the Scooby-Doo? Is the, isn't that what the bad guy would always say? And I would have got away with it too if it weren't for you meddling kids. And your dog, yeah. yeah and you know, uh, a, <laughs> a meddler is one who intrudes into other people's affairs. What's especially noteworthy is, uh, as you pointed out, this descriptor appears with uh, murder, theft, and just all-around evil doing. Strange company, right? Well, not really. A meddler can assassinate the character of another. They can rob a person of their good name and reputation. And so their practice is definitely in line with evildoers. And so meddler getting into other people's business. And to that, we ought to say, stay in your lane, right? While the exact meaning of this word is difficult to nail down because it's it's a very rare term, uh, it's used only here and two other places in 4th and 5th century documents, it seems to be a term describing someone who involves themselves into the affairs of others, inviting themselves into issues not their own. They are a barinsky. In Spanish, entrementido, right? Suffering for being a Budinsky is beneath a Christian. Stay in your lane, right? That's that's what I see here with Meddler. Alex, what do you think? You know, I think I think the context perhaps would point towards something more serious than like the modern day Meddler. Um, considering the instruction in chapter two about submission to government, and considering the historical context, I would say that. Perhaps here, a troublesome meddler was someone intending on causing trouble for their governing rulers. Uh, we know such groups existed like that in the first century, like zealots and sicarii. Uh, they were known even for assassination and destruction of Roman property. And I think such actions like that may have seemed alluring to those who were suffering under Roman government, uh, perhaps even justified to a group of people, again, hurting under persecution. But Peter says, don't do it. Uh, don't meddle. Don't make trouble. Don't take revenge. I think that may be what Peter has in mind, which is why he groups it together with uh, murder and theft. So my take, just two cents putting it out there verse 17 nick it says judgment begins now with the house of god so how has judgment already begun and is this judgment in reference to before the resurrection why don't you talk to us for about that yeah so uh, even now the wrath of god is being revealed from heaven on ungodliness and unrighteousness as people suppress the truth and unrighteousness this is what paul writes Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Those who do not obey the Son, God's wrath abides on them. Present tense, present tense, it abides on them. John 3 and verse 36 tells us this. This is the present reality for the unbeliever. Even as now, the Christian enjoys the blessings and benefits of eternal life in part with more to come in the future. So the present experience of unbelievers is wrath with more to come in the future. How we as Christians view the trials and sufferings we endure matters. Notice that it is not punishment which begins with the house, the NIV says family, of God, but it's judgment. Christ has suffered our punishment, and therefore when we experience pain and persecution in the world, God is not punishing us for our sins. Christ did that. 
Christ received the punishment for our sins on the cross. He endured the wrath of God, which was due us. Rather, judgment begins from the house of God. Literally, God's people are the jumping-off point, the point of departure for God's judgment. And seeing that we have ceased from sin, as we talked about in 4 verse 1, he moves on to those who are not his family. That is, those who do not obey the gospel of God. Worse affliction will be visited upon the unbeliever, specifically exclusion from the presence of God. Uh, so uh, that's how I see this, and I think I get the now and not yet bit in there, but uh, uh, my take on this judgment. What do you think, Alex, about this judgment that is to begin at the household of God? Uh, to me, it sounds like Peter may be looping into the end of his letter here, something that he laid out in the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 17, Peter mentioned that God judges impartially according to each one's work. Therefore, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your exile. This judgment refers to the examination of how we are living our lives right here and now. The time we spend on earth is a testing period and a period of refinement, chapter 1, verse 7. So just like the Israelites in the wilderness after the exodus, so we here are to endure as God's people, the final stage of existence before we enter into the promised land. And what will the uh, unbeliever have to show for themselves during humanity's final period of testing? Well, not much. I think that's Peter's point. But the good news is, is that because the gospel was preached to Peter's audience, they can live with hope. And that cycle of preaching, believing, and enduring is how the spreading of God's kingdom occurs. So I think the judgment has begun, but it's in reference, as you said, not into punishment, uh, but uh, as to examination of how one is using their time while left here on earth. So Nick, verse 18, does the phrase, the righteous are scarcely saved, that's your ESV, and it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, that's my NASB, does that mean that Christ is barely able to save us? Yeah, uh, scarcely does not point to the uncertainty of a Christian's uh, salvation. Rather, the word can also mean, as your New American Standard, I think, got it right here, with difficulty. And I think this echoes uh, the preaching of Paul and Barnabas over in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22, where they say that uh, they were saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Salvation. Mm is with difficulty because of the suffering, because of the trials and the persecution that Christians endure from unbelievers. So mm-hmm. that's my read on uh, this, uh, this quotation that Peter has here in verse 18. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, a, good, a good comment there. And I noted that this was a quote as well from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31, um, it doesn't match the Masoretic text, but it does match the Septuagint. So if you're reading your Septuagint, you'll have a very close match for Proverbs 11.31. Just like we noted in chapter 1, verse 9, about how we will receive the salvation of our souls, that was future tense, but we currently have salvation. So here we should view, I think, salvation as an umbrella term again. That term covers both one's regeneration, that's the point of salvation, That's past tense. We have that now. But also one's sanctification. That's the process of becoming like Christ. That's that's present tense. We're undergoing it, and it's future tense. We will have an end in which we are like Christ. Now, it's, it's difficult to be sanctified. It's very difficult. That's the part of our discipleship where we have to carry our cross daily, where we have to die to ourselves, uh, where we no longer live for the flesh, as Peter said in chapter 4, verse 2. And I think it's fair to say that it is with great difficulty that we are sanctified or made holy. And that's Peter's point from my reading. Not that it was difficult to be regenerated. If anything, the regeneration part, that was the easy part, right? (laughs) It was easy to be baptized. It was easy to receive the gift of salvation, but it is very difficult to endure the process of sanctification. And both of those things, regeneration and sanctification, are in mind when we see the word salvation. The same principle, though, did apply in the Old Testament. Peter's quoting Proverbs, after all. 
So even though the Israelites were saved as God's people, again, think of the Exodus, they were saved from Egyptian bondage. Well, they still had to learn the law and to practice it and to uh, become God's holy people. And that was part of the testing in the wilderness uh, that they had to endure. So verse 19, I think this is our last question for the podcast today before we get to our featured creature. And it's a doozy. And so verse 19 mentions, uh, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So Nick, is suffering a part of God's will? And if so, how? Yeah, so uh, the ones suffering according to or by the will of God are the same ones who are called upon to entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Those, those are Christians. These are Christians. And why are they suffering? Well, it is according to the will of God. These are Christians who suffer because it is it's what God has willed. And while at first blush, that may seem harsh, it's actually intended to bolster faith. The duration, the intensity of the suffering, that's all under God's sovereign control. What Christians suffer is for their good because it is according to the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Now, context, I believe, also helps bring this out. Suffering according to God's will means to share in Christ's sufferings, as we saw in verse 13. It is to be insulted for the name of Christ, verse 14. It is to glorify God by suffering as a Christian, verse 16. God's will is not that we suffer as an evildoer, as we saw in verse 15. Christ's suffering in the flesh is the model for Christian suffering. Just as Christ suffered according to the will of his Father, so Christians suffer according to the will of our faithful Creator. Nothing happened to Christ apart from the Father's sovereignty and love. This means that nothing befalls us happens independent of God's sovereignty and love. He is in control of everything, and any suffering that we endure is not the result of an uncaring, an indifferent or, or indifferent universe randomly selecting us for pain. Our suffering is not accidental. It is not the result of dumb luck. Suffering is not purposeless, but purposeful. It is not meaningless. It is meaningful. Our suffering is under the watchful and loving eye of sovereign God. Then, what about suffering and evil generally among all people, or as Peter styles them, those who do not obey the gospel, the ungodly and the sinner, as he again describes them in 4, 17 and 18. How does God's will factor into the suffering of sinners? Old Testament and New Testament affirm the universal governance of God over the affairs of humans, both those who pledge allegiance to him and those who rebel against his will. Yahweh rules over all. He rules over everything. Psalm 47 and verse 2 uh, describes Yahweh as a great king over all the earth. Psalm 103 and verse 19, Yahweh established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. 1 Timothy 1 verse 17, he is the king eternal. And since Yahweh is the sovereign ruler over everything and everyone, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, as we're told in Daniel 4 and verse 35. Our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 115 and verse 3. Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all, de all deeps. Uh, Psalm 135 and verse 6. Yahweh declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. So he says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Therefore, the counsel of Yahweh stands forever, the plans of his hearts to all generation. Psalm 33 and verse 11. This is in stark contrast with the counsel of the nations and the plans of people, which Yahweh brings to nothing and frustrates, as he says, as it says in Psalm 33, verse 10. Therefore, whatsoever happens in this world happens because of the counsel, purpose, and plan of King Yahweh. And therefore I say that God wills whatsoever comes to pass so that anything that takes place in time actually has meaning. Otherwise, we are left with well, completely meaningless activity taking place, including suffering for being a Christian. Uh, so, my take on it, Alex, 
Your turn. What about this business of suffering? Is it according to the will of God or not? Yeah, so Nick and I see very differently on this issue, if you haven't noticed by now. I do not hold to a Calvinistic view on suffering and evil, where all of the suffering and evil is under the complete and total planning and control of God. I do not hold that view. I do affirm that God does what he wills, but I also affirm that other intelligent beings like ourselves do not always do what God wills. Thus, evil enters into the world. I view Peter's statement here in view of the parable of the wheat and the tares. That's in Matthew 13. The wheat are the sons of the kingdom, sown by the Son of Man, but the tares are the sons of the evil one, sown by the devil. At the harvest, the wheat will be separated from the tares, which will be done by the angels at the end of the age. God does not will for evil to occur or for evil doers to exist forever. So why does God wait then for the separation? Because tares look like wheat, and he doesn't want the wheat to be damaged. Until we accept the gospel of Christ, we look like tares. But then upon salvation and upon our testing on earth, it will be shown that we are actually wheat. God does not know who all will be saved. That's why he patiently waits for more to repent. That's 2 Peter chapter 3. Our suffering here and now is the byproduct of our own sin and the sin of others. And it is God's will that we endure in this environment where suffering naturally takes place until it is shown who we really are after we pass through the fiery trials of our spiritual exile. The specific evil that you suffer was not planned out by God, but that doesn't make it meaningless. It is given meaning by our faithful endurance and desire to save others. So if I'm hearing you right, we give suffering meaning by our faithful obedience? Yes. It's not God that gives it meaning, right? He works through us so that we can faithfully endure. So what do you do with this phrase here then? The ones suffering according to the will of God. What does that phrase even mean then? It is God's will that we endure in this environment called the earth. And that environment contains suffering because of people's choices to sin. But that's not what Peter says, though, right? I mean, it's the suffering that is according to the will of God. No, it's holy. It's holy uh, in harmony with what Peter says. It is according to the will of God that these are the ones suffering. I'm just okay. Well, the same ones who are to entrust themselves to the faithful Creator are the ones who are suffering, and it is according to the will of God. Yep. Okay, say it again. You and I <laughs> have <I'm> very... <laughs> you and I have very different glasses when we're reading this passage, don't we? This is a worldview thing. That's why I said to view all suffering as completely planned out, written in the script by God. Every specific pain. That's a very Calvinistic view of suffering. I don't hold that view. That's a worldview. That's a lens. That's, those are special glasses. Those are filters that you view the text through. I don't That's, hold that. And look, you're an open theist. I get it. I'm, I'm asking. The, the, the text says that the ones who are suffering, they are suffering according to the will of God. Yep, because it's God's will for the wheat to exist with the tares until the end of the age. That naturally produces suffering because of the sins of other people. It's God's will for us to exist in this environment where suffering does take place until the end of the age. But it is not God's will for every single specific suffering that has taken place. He didn't write that out ahead of time and said, I want that to be what this person undergoes. That is not what this says. 
So there's a parallel to this back in 317. It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's... And, and Okay, so literally what it says is, if the will of God may will, that you suffer for doing good rather than for evil. That suffering for doing good would be... If, 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 it, if it's God's will that he will that, that suffering for doing good would be according to the will of God, right? Yep. When the Christian lives like a Christian, it has natural repercussions in a world full of unbelievers and evil people. And so it is God's will for us to still be Christians, to still live like Christians, even when the results of that is suffering. But that's not what he says, Alex. It's you're, you're, it not, you're playing you're playing fast and loose with the text, and your 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 eisegesis is manifest in this. Okay, thanks for the ad hominem. You are reading into it, though. What's not there? I don't think I am. Okay. Hey, what's our featured creature? <laughs> <laughs> Today's featured creature is death. In the Hebrew, it's mot. In the Greek, it's thanatos. Nick, why don't you tell us what you think about the creature known as death? I almost forgot. Featured creature. So in the Bible, death often refers to what happens when a person dies. It's the expiration of life. There are, though, some references where death is personified and seemingly presented as a deity. For example, in Isaiah 28, verses 15 through 18, Israel made a covenant with death and Sheol in an attempt to avoid the overwhelming scourge of divine justice, an attempt which proves to be a misguided failure. The Canaanite deity Mot may be behind such a reference. The Israelites choosing solidarity with this god, little g, rather than Yahweh, the one true and only god. Indeed, Yahweh is so much greater than death that he swallows up death forever, Isaiah 25 verse 8 tells us. Death and Sheol, they are also pictured together in Hosea 13 and verse 14, a text which is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 and 55. Death is a defeated foe. He is the last enemy, uh, as he is described in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 15. He's vanquished by the Lord Jesus Christ through the resurrection. That's the theme of 1 Corinthians 15, by the way. And similarly, in Romans 5, Paul also personifies death there, picturing him as a tyrant who exercises dominion over all of humanity, along with sin, due to Adam's trespass. However, Christ, the second Adam, came and through his death killed death. Death died in the death of Christ. Thereby, death's dominion was broken, ended by the death of burial, and resurrection of Christ, uh, as Paul says in Romans 6 and verse 9. The final fate of death is with Hades, being cast into the lake of fire, the second death. Revelation 20 and verse 14 tells us that. Again, death shall die. Uh, and so that's a bit about uh, death that I found. Alex, what say you? Well, there exists in the ancient Near East a deity named Death. In Hebrew, the word for death is mavet or mat. Uh, in the Canaanite pantheon, though, mat or matu is an actual being. Mat does appear in the Old Testament in the context of destroying spirits. Psalm 78 verse 50, and we've mentioned Psalm 78 many times because that's where we learn about the band of destroying angels that Yahweh sent against Egypt. If you're reading your Septuagint, perhaps while you're perusing the book of Sirach, chapter 39, verse 29, you might notice that there are spirits that were created for vengeance. Death is among one of those spirits. Mot universally gets translated as death in the Old Testament. However, there are characteristics of Mot which are relevant to him as the god of death. Now, some would consider all of these instances to be simply personification, but I think it would be hard not to think of the actual deity known throughout the ancient Near East. So what do we have? In Hosea 13, 14, Mot is seen alongside Sheol, and he's commanding Dever. 
Tever is another featured creature, by the way. In Habakkuk 2.5, Mott is seen along Sheol and is never satisfied. In Isaiah 28.15 and verse 18, Mott is seen alongside Sheol and makes a covenant with the apostate Judah. In Psalm 49.14, Mott is acting as a shepherd who is leading souls to Sheol. In the ancient Near East, Mott is an underworld deity, is one of the kings of the underworld. In the ancient Near East, there are texts where Mott appears to be a most fearsome enemy. He is consuming both gods and men. Nobody likes him. Mott was one of the main enemies, in fact, of Baal. You may notice Baal from the Old Testament. So they fight each other in Ugaritic mythology. Now, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, we have the four horsemen, and the fourth horseman is called Death. The underlying Greek is Thanatos, who was a real deity in Greco-Roman mythology. And just like we see Mott alongside Sheol, there is, here in Revelation 6, Thanatos alongside Hades. Like Mott, Thanatos was hateful towards and hated by both gods and men alike. Like Mott's battle with Baal, there is a story where Thanatos battles with the demigod Heracles. If you want to know what Mot, uh, Thanatos looks like, you can. there's a relief carving of Thanatos that was recovered from the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, dating to around 300 BC. You know what he looks like? He looks like what our modern conception is of an angel, you know, a man with big giant wings. So, when you think of an all-around malevolent being with a thick gullet and insatiable desire to destroy half of creation. No, that's not Thanos wearing the infinity gauntlet. That's just Mott carrying out vengeance upon the wicked. And that's death. And that's our featured creature. I think we need like a button or something. Like when we when we do the sword play thing, when we actually go into sword play mode, bam, 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 bam. <laughs> Well, I'll have to work on that in the post-production. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, do you have any important information for our audience, Nick? If you have a question, feel free to send it in. You can text it in to area code 316-24-SWORD. That is 316-247-9673. Uh, also, go into the Apple Podcast uh, store and search Swordplay. If you aren't already, subscribe to the podcast uh, and leave a review. And I, I've seen that some, uh, a number of people have, have done that. Uh, and we thank you for the reviews, uh, the, the five-star ratings, awesome. And so, uh, uh, yeah, go in there, download episodes, take them with you uh, on the go and, and things like that. Uh, Alex, if they do have a question, not only can they text it in via the text line, but they can email it in, right? Yeah, send your email to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Before we forget again, Nick, you were recently on another podcast. What was that? Yeah, I was on the the Bible Says What? The Bible Says What? Uh, podcast. Uh, it is available in a number of locations. He's got a, a Podbean website. It's on YouTube. You can find it in uh, Apple Podcast. Uh, he was on Google Play in the Google Play Music Store, but that's now defunct, so I don't know where it goes now. But anyway, uh, I was on there. The The host is an atheist, and he is in line with the new atheists. Think uh, Dawkins, Harris, Hitchens, and uh, and that comes out very strongly <laughs> in the in the conversation that we have, and uh, and we we covered a number of things. In that podcast, it was uh, it was stepping into the arena the arena of ideas, because I am persuaded that the Christian worldview is more than able, more than capable of standing up in the arena of ideas. Um, and by the way, I got that from Paul because he does that in the Areopagus, right? We, we mentioned that earlier. So, uh, but uh, yeah, you can find that it is um, if it's not the most watched video of his on YouTube, it's close. Uh, it's now over 100 views on YouTube. That's awesome. Thanks to all of our fans and those who uh, helped support that and went over and listened to that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so so that happened a couple weeks ago, and it's available in all those various outlets. 
And I don't know, did did you want to make an announcement? Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm going to be on the podcast, uh, Bible Says What, as well, later on in March. So hey, we'll, we'll keep you appraised. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And, uh, you know, uh, in all fairness, it, it from what I heard, it seemed like uh, Michael was very cordial. You know, he was. Gave, gave you plenty of, of time to speak and uh, didn't didn't really interrupt. And so yeah, I thought it was a, a very civil civil debate. And so you guys are best friends now, right? <laughs> uh, no. Maybe not. But uh, <laughs> Maybe not best friends, but uh, we are uh, still on speaking terms, I guess. But you were still friendly. So yes. yeah. I think that's good. Well, that is all we have today for the podcast, First Peter chapter 4. Join us next week for the final chapter of First Peter. Come back to Swordplay. This is where you get a double-edged perspective on Scripture. 